Good morning, everyone, and happy 4th of July. So if, you are, uh, if you're here this morning, if you guys want some questions or the notes that uh, go along with today's message, they're on the communion tables around the room. You can help yourself to one of those. Um, you can also download an app called Version on your phone, and from there you can click on more and then events, and you can get all the notes and today's verses we're going to go through in today's message. Uh, throughout this uh, minor series, uh, we're going to have a few guest speakers, and today you get me. Lucky you. So my name is Donald Weeding, and this morning we get, get to go through the book of Malachi together. Now, we have spent the last few weeks looking at the minor prophets, that last group of books in the Old Testament, learning about each prophet from the book. Today, however, is going to be a little bit different as we are going to learn nothing about Malachi. We're not going to learn anything about him because this book isn't about Malachi at all. In fact, we know very little about him. Biblical scholars are still, aren't completely positive if Malachi is actually his name or simply his title, as it means messenger. For all we know, he could have had a different name. His name may have been Bob or James or who knows what, and he could have simply been a messenger delivering God's message to his people. So, but, you know, most people actually believe that Malachi is both his name and his title, and I agree with that assessment myself. This is the last book in the Old Testament. This is God's final words to his people before 400 years of silence and before the next prophet, John the Baptizer, shows up to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, I like to think that in God's clever design, he named his messenger Malachi to give his final message before the coming of Jesus. So Malachi, while he is a prophet, he is simply delivering the mail. And this morning, I'm going to give you a a Cliff Notes version of that mail. But here's the great thing about God's message, about this mail that God delivers to his people, is we all have access to that same mail. We can hear the message and learn from it, but we can also read it for ourselves. We can open up the Bible and read God's message to us for ourselves. So while I hope we all can learn a little something this morning, I would also encourage you to go and read it for yourself. Open up the book of Malachi sometime this week and see what God is saying to you. And the amazing words of the great LeVar Burton from uh, Reading Rainbow, you don't have to take my word for it. So now, if you wouldn't mind standing with me, we'll jump in and we'll get things going this morning. This is Malachi 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to first and foremost thank you for being a God that loves us that is unchanging and always loving us, despite our actions, despite our sin, despite who we are, that you love us. And God, I pray that we can be a people that hear your words to us this morning and we can open our hearts to what you are calling us to and that we can in turn love you back and love others in the way that you love us and go forward loving you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, I want to set the scene here a bit for the time that Malachi is delivering God's message. You have the people of God, and they all know that God exists. They've rescued, he, had re, he has rescued them from Egypt, has promised to take care of them, and promised to send a savior. But for them, God is just kind of a presence in the sky that is there, not someone to really interact with. They're worshiping him as God, but only in the ways they want to. They obey him, but not really for the right reasons. They sacrifice and give to him, but not with their whole hearts. They're kind of cherry-picking when and how to worship, sacrifice, give, and follow his commandments. I mean, with this setup, I hope you can see that as God's children today, we really haven't evolved that much. You know, 
reading through this myself, I came to quickly realize that while this is God's message written to these people, it's also written for us today. Malachi, it's only four chapters, and it brings up six arguments or issues, and it's extremely helpful for me because I can just turn it into a six-point message for you guys this morning. It's also super difficult at the same time because Malachi could be a six-week sermon series all on its own. I listened to a couple other pastors teach on this, and they took a minimum of three weeks to get through this very short book. If you have an Element Bible, it's only on pages 518 through 520. Only three pages, and it has a lot to cover. There's a lot of information, and so I may talk fast every now and then to get through it all, but I know you're used to you know, somebody talking fast and information coming at you at lightning speed, right? So I think we're all going to be fine this morning. Malachi 1-2 starts with, I have loved you. God's first words to his people is, I have loved you. And how do people respond? How have you loved us? The people give back a question to God as if he hasn't loved us. The people are showing what's in their hearts by saying, how have you loved us? This is the people judging God and, 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 his, and his actions. They are angry with God because they aren't getting what they think they deserve. They love God for the purpose of getting wealth and happiness and houses that are paid for in full and big screen TVs and new cars and cookies or whatever it is that makes them happy. I mean, who does that? Who would think that they deserve something or they deserve more? What kind of people claim that they love God and they think they should be happier for it or that God owes them? I mean, who does that? I do. I mean, I think it's safe to say that we have all done this at times and we have all been guilty of this. And I'll tell you what God owes them. The same thing he owes all of us. Nothing. God owes us absolutely nothing. We, in fact, we owe everything to God. That place of selfishness, that place where we think we are owed more, this is how the people of Malachi are acting. This is how they're reacting right now. The people of Israel are in a place where they feel like they aren't getting their fair share from God and that they ask why they should give anything back to God, why they should follow a God that isn't making them happy. The people are acting like selfish, rebellious children. And like a good father, God deals with his children and uses Malachi to basically bring about a family meeting. Some of you have may never heard the term family meeting, but in my house, a family meeting is called together because something is wrong. Something needs to be discussed, something needs to be addressed, and you need to talk over something. It's very rare a family meeting is called together and you go, okay, listen up. We don't know if we want to go get ice cream or go to Disneyland. What do you guys think? You know? No, family meetings, they're called together because something's wrong. And God, he's going to pull his people together and go through what isn't working. God is going to step in with a father's heart and show his children and us today where things aren't going well. How have you loved us? This is the first issue that God is going to answer. Now, if you've been around for some of these messages in the minor series, you have heard about how God came to a man named Abraham and promised to bless him. Eventually, this all points to Jesus. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob and Esau. And the blessing God gave to Abraham went to Jacob. And God grew Jacob into the person who trusted the Lord, eventually changing his name to Israel. Jacob's brother Esau did not follow God. And in Malachi 1.3, God says this about Esau's family line, the Edomites. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the deserts. This actually refers back to Aaron's message in Obadiah that God brought judgment because the Edomites refused to help Israel when they were in trouble. The people of Israel are so focused inwardly on themselves that they aren't looking at how the world is hurting outside them, just like the Edomites did in Obadiah. 
The point is made clearly that people have it far worse. And God, he is not saying that he is going to bless people that worship him and not bless people that don't. God is simply reminding his people of Israel that he has a plan. And part of that plan is to take care of his children. God is trying to remind people that they are taken care of. He is taking care of his children, and it doesn't always mean prosperity. The people are being taken care of, but they think they deserve more. If you're a parent, I know you guys can relate to this. As adults, we understand the difference between wants and needs. And my five-year-old, he doesn't really have this dialed in quite yet. And so he sees something he wants, and he just asks me to buy it for him right then and there. He wants these things because he sees it, and he knows it'll make him happy. I know it'll make him happy too, but I can't just give him everything that makes him happy because that happiness is fleeting. It'll keep him happy for a little while, but eventually he won't be happy with it anymore. And this isn't the way to love my son. He doesn't understand that he just needs to be loved and cared for in the way that I do love and care for him. He is housed, clothes, has meals to eat, water to drink, and he is loved. Everything else beyond that, it's simply just extra. As his father, I do enjoy buying him things that make him happy. I do enjoy giving him gifts, but not just because he wants it, because I want to give it to him. He, I want him to understand that he doesn't need things, that he can have these things and that they can bring him happiness, but they're just extra. You see, I think God is doing the same thing. God is reminding his people that they are forgetting that the Lord has already blessed them. They have crops, they have livestock, they have a place to lay their heads at night. God is kindly reminding them that he has kept to his words and taken care of them in the way they need to be taken care of. Malachi 1.6, God goes on, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? God, he's turning the tables here a little bit. Where the people are asking the question, how has God loved them? He points out the question should be, How have they loved God? There is always going to be a problem when we start questioning if God really loves us instead of of asking ourselves if we truly love God. God asks them, if I am a father, where is my honor? God, God is telling them that they're not honoring him. This is the father heart of God speaking to his wayward kids. What happens if a child is throwing a fit or acting disobedient and a parent gives that child what they want? Well, the child is taught that tantrums equal blessings, and a parent ends up raising a disobedient child. A good parent doesn't give a misbehaving child what they want. No, a good parent gives a disobedient child nothing or a discipline. Malachi 1.6, God continues, And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Now, something important happens here that we need to focus on for just a bit is that God is going to start with the leaders. He's going to start with the leaders. And how do you think the priests respond? But you say, how have we despised your name? Yeah, the leaders are questioning God just as the people question God. Or maybe another way to view it is that the people as a whole are acting like their leadership. This is the very reason God is going to start with the priests first, because the priests are leading God's people. If you are a leader in a church, if you are a leader in your home or a leader in your business, you should know that God holds leaders to a higher level of accountability and God knows that leaders create the culture of which the people of the people they lead. Culture is created by what you teach and what you tolerate. As a leader, you are teaching people not just through your words, but through your actions. When I was writing this message, uh, my wife and I, we actually failed at this very same thing. 
We have a rule in our house that you have to finish your homework before you play games or go out with friends or do any of that kind of fun stuff. And it was just after 8 p.m. and uh, our daughter was playing games online with her friends. And we learned she hadn't finished her homework. So what do we do about it? Well, we shut down the Wi-Fi, we turned the games off and made her get right to her homework is what I wish we would have done. No. <laughs> Instead, she's a good kid. She's a good kid. She deserves time with her friends. So we gave her another 30 minutes to play games with her friends and wrap things up, and then she went and finished her homework. Now, as her parents, as her leaders, we tell her that your homework has to be finished before games, but we tolerate it when she plays games before finishing her homework. Do you think that we have taught her that she really needs to finish her homework before playing games through what we tolerated? No, no, we haven't. She knows she can play games before finishing her homework now. And as a side note, I pointed this failure out that my wife and I both had in this moment, and the next time, we won't tolerate it the same way. Because culture in a household comes from what you teach and what you tolerate. And the same thing is true for a business, where a boss says, everybody has to be at work by 8 a.m., but there is no punishment if somebody shows up late. People start showing up around 8-ish or 9-ish, and it's okay. And if coming in late is tolerated, then everyone's going to begin doing it. So the culture you create is one of what you teach and what you tolerate. And this is the same for the church and God's people. The priests, they're letting a lot of things slide right now. The priests think everything is going well, and they have forgotten that life is God down, not people up. The priests are saying that, well, this is working for us, so why does God have a problem with it? The priests are giving the people what they want, not what God wants for his people. The key to leadership is finding and leading people to the will of God. It's asking, what does he want? The leaders here are failing in instructing the people to follow God. The priests are asking, how have we despised your name? And God is going to respond and give his second issue addressed to the priests. Malachi 1.7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. You see, there's this problem in the world called sin. And God sets a plan to remove sin in Christ. But first, he institutes the temple system that all points to Jesus. Instead of the people being punished for their sin, they can give a sacrifice in their place. But the offerings people are giving, they're, they're polluted. The priests, they're going to start to cross-examine God here. This is never a good plan, by the way, to cross-examine God. The priests ask God, how have we polluted you? And God begins to explain how his people are not giving of their first fruits, but giving the lame and sick and blind animals up for offerings instead. Again, the priests are okay with it. The priests aren't teaching or correcting the people of God, but they're accepting at how the people are acting. And most likely, they're actually doing the same thing themselves. Their sacrifice and giving to God has failed. Sin comes in and separates people from God, and God creates this plan so they can have a relationship with his people. And the people aren't treating the temple as they should. Instead, the people are giving their first fruits. They're giving their leftovers. Instead of giving their best to God, they are giving their best to their governors, their rulers, important people, and then themselves. And when it comes time to give to God, they had nothing to left over. God knows that we give with our hearts. And where our hearts are is where our giving will go. If our hearts are with God, then we will give to God first. But if our hearts are with ourselves, with our own wants and our own desires, then we are going to give to that first. We still do this today with giving of our leftovers. Before we give to God, we pay our mortgage or rent, we pay our bills, including those all-important streaming services, 
We put gas in our cars, we fill our fridges and pantries, we dine out a couple times, maybe go see that new movie, and then we see what's left over, and whatever's left over, that's what we give to God. Well, the problem with giving our leftovers is that we're not truly putting God first in our hearts. This is happening here with the people of Israel giving their leftovers to God and not giving with a heart that honors God. God steps in and says, shut it down. God straight up tells his people to stop coming and stop bringing anything because they aren't coming with the faith and passion that he wants from his children. Malachi 1.10, God says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God, he does not rejoice in our offerings when it comes from a, when it isn't coming from a joyful and generous heart. When our hearts are focused upon ourselves and our own desires, we will see everything as mine, it's mine, it's my precious, and we start to worship ourselves. And then, we, and then that turns into us questioning God and asking, why do I need to give so much of my wealth to God? But when we understand that it all belongs to God, when we understand that giving is supposed to be generous, sacrificial, and joyful, when we start to live for God first and be good stewards, and then we begin to give joyfully with a generous heart. Stewardship, it isn't about God taking your money or time or stuff. God, God doesn't need any of those things. What God wants is a relationship with you and for us to understand that all of our money, our time available to us, our possessions, our talents, our house, our cars, our boats, our computers, whatever it is, it's all a gift given to us. He is a generous God who has blessed us with these things and everything we have is a blessing from God, and he simply wants us to be generous with them as he was generous in giving them to us. Giving is a blessing. Giving, it's not a way to get a blessing in return. It's not a trade program that he set up. You know, I know when Christmas comes around, I find the most joy in watching people open gifts that I've given them that they love, that they're really excited about. Sure, I'm happy when I get a gift, but, you know, I don't really hold on to that happiness very long. I don't really remember it. The true joy that I remember for long periods of time is watching other people have fun and the time I get to spend with friends and family and those relationships I get to have. He doesn't, God doesn't need anything from his people. He just desires a relationship with his people. So, so far, God has shown that the leadership has failed, the offering has failed, and third, God is going to speak about marriage. Malachi 2, 10 through 11. I'm going to read this out of the NIV. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. You see, the people's hearts were in the wrong place. And they weren't putting, they were putting their own desires and wants first before putting what God wants for them. Their priorities, they were not in a proper order. Our priorities should always be heaven down, not people up. Our priorities are in this order. Jesus first, then our spouse, then our children, and then everything else. Now God, he's using marriage as an example here because he calls himself the bridegroom of Israel. But this is also true for all of our relationships. Whether it's a relationship you have with a parent or a friend or a coworker, the trouble we have is when our priorities are out of order is a tendency to put someone else into that God position. And there is no one on earth that can fill that place, no one that can fill God's place. The more we try to fill it with people, the more we set ourselves up for failed relationships. 
If we want to fix pains in our relationship, we got to start by having a relationship with God. Our priorities, they start with God. And when the Lord's people marry someone from a foreign land who worships a foreign God, the couple's priorities, they're out of sorts. They're not on the same page, focusing on God first. And when married couples both have their hearts on God first, that marriage is more apt to thrive and be a blessing to God, each other be a blessing to their children, and be a blessing to those around them. This, this is why Christians should marry other Christians, because when two believers create a covenant together with God as the priority in their lives together, they will move forward on the same page. Now, if you're a follower of Christ and you married someone who does not believe in God, does that mean that your marriage is doomed? Nope. No, it does not. God can do amazing things. But I think you'll also agree with me that that marriage doesn't thrive in the same way either. Because with having the heart of a Christian who is committed to Christ, you will always have an unfulfilled desire for your spouse to know Jesus the same way you know Jesus. And the longer that relationship goes on, the more relevant it becomes. My wife and I, we're both Christians, and we run into this issue ourselves. We constantly remind each other to check in on each other on our priorities. We are human, and our priorities, they get out of order. She will admit that at times she puts our children at the top of that list, just as I can admit that I put work at the top of that list. We get off track because our priorities are in an order and we need to make a course correction. And when we do, our marriage is greater when we have a focus on God first, then serving each other, then serving our kids, and then serving everyone else, and everything else goes below that. The rest of chapter 2, God will speak about being faithful to your spouse, raising godly children, and conclude this part of marriage by saying, Malachi 2.16, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now this verse, it's really hard to translate into English. And sadly, this verse is often taught incorrectly that divorce is never an option especially if you were to read it out of the New King James Version, which translates as, for the, God, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. But when you actually look at this verse in context, you will see once again that the father heart of God is speaking to the hearts of his children. God's people were being unfaithful in their marriage to God. But men, they were also divorcing their wives simply so they can be with someone else, believing that someone else would give them what they selfishly desired. This is also speaking how God does not take any pleasure in divorce because the violence you cause your spouse that God refers to in verse 16 is the pain and the heartache and the scarring that comes with divorce. God, he doesn't want that for his kids. He doesn't want that for his children. He doesn't want those that he loves to experience that kind of pain. And God is reminding his people that the standard of marriage comes from the creation account, which establishes the covenantal nature of marriage between a man and a woman. And God doesn't desire for that covenant to be broken. It's also really important to understand that while divorce isn't ideal, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere does it state that God turns his back on the divorcee. No, God God doesn't love the pain and heartache that comes with the separation and broken covenant. Our God is an unchanging and loves all his children, no matter the pain or sin that is in your lives. So at this point now, God has stated first and foremost that he loves us, has gone on to show us how the leaders are failing. People have failed in their offering and sacrifices to God. Marriages are failing due to unfaithfulness and selfishness. And the scorecard, it doesn't look too good right now. 
And fourth, God is going to point out the problem with people blaming God for failing to bring them prosperity, prominence, and wealth. How do you think this is going to go? Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights, and he delights in them. Yes, yes, God loves everyone. Yes, God loves it when we are living for him and we show that love through our words and our actions. No, no, God does not view our sin as a good thing. And no, he does not delight in our sin. Our God is a loving and welcoming God despite of our sin. And I think we, we can do the same thing. Loving and accepting someone doesn't mean we love and accept their actions too. We don't have to love their sin. If someone is living in a way that doesn't honor God or goes against how God calls us to live, we can still accept and love them without accepting or loving their actions. Malachi 2.17 continues, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, the people of Israel, they know that there is a promise of restoration and justice that is to come. And that is true. However, the people are experiencing social and political oppression and economic hardships, and they're upset with God because they want their restoration now. I mean, how often have you been in a tough place and felt that God was absent or had some wrong done to you and felt like the other person got, a- got away with it? See, God knows what's in our hearts, and he knows that many times our anger at God, it's coming from a place where we are actually judging him. We are putting ourselves in God's position, and we make ourselves our priority, and we say we know what's better than God. We want to see that person judged. We want to see that action happen. And the only time you're ever allowed to do that is when you're driving, and someone cuts you off or uses a roundabout. That sinner should be punished right then and there. Well, maybe that's just me, though, but... But I think we all struggle with this because, you know, we all want to see God's justice in action. And the fact is that we have seen God's judgment. And that judgment for all of us was guilty. That punishment for that guilt is death and separation from God eternally. And yet God gave us grace. Grace. The scorecard now in Malachi is a failure in trusting that God is in control along with a failure in leadership, failure in offerings, a failure in marriages among God's people, and a failure in respecting the providence of God. Fifth, God will come back to a failure in stewardships in our offerings. Where in chapter two, he focuses on the failure to the leadership. Now he's going to focus on everyone as a whole. Malachi 3, 8 through 9, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? and your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The people have forgotten that everything belongs to God. We, we don't own anything. It's all God's, and we are simply stewards of what is already his. Like the people in Malachi, we can take one of two views of, on our possessions and our talents and the time available to us. We can hold on to it safe and keep it to ourselves and place our hearts on whatever it is we treasure, and we can really hold on to it tight and then focus on this, and we start worshiping the creation instead of looking to God and focusing on, the crea- on who created all this. We start to close our hearts and only focus on whatever it is we're holding on to. But when we start to hold on to our possessions and talents and time available to us openly, giving when called to give and allowing God to use it and be used as God sees fits, then we're able to turn our eyes to God. We can worship God with our hearts fully. 
It's like when we worship with our music, we, we lift our hands towards the sky and we show God visually that we are willing to give him everything, everything. It's when we open our hearts to God that we can experience true joy, not just happiness, but joy. The opposite is true. When our, when our hearts are closed to God, it's, it's hard for things to get in. It's hard for us to let the Holy Spirit into our lives and, and work on us. It's when we open up that we allow the Holy Spirit to come in and we allow Jesus to change us and reshape us. Now to recap, it's a failed trust in God, failed leadership, failed offerings, failed marriages, and failed stewardship. And this is all written by the prophet Malachi over 2,000 years ago to the people of Israel, but it sounds a bit like our lives today. This is where the sixth and final point comes in. God, with a loving Father's heart, he is going to give hope and rescue to his people. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 will conclude with these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The final words of God's people before Jesus comes. These are God's final words. And Malachi gives people a promise of the coming of the Messiah. God foreshadows the day of the Lord, and this is a common theme in the Minor Prophets. And here, the day of the Lord indicates that it's the coming of the Messiah. God is stating that he will come in the form of Jesus and that he will have victory over all the places that we have failed. God shows them that while even while we aren't giving him our best, he still gives us his best. That while we are giving what we feel like, he gives us what we need, which is his only son. God, he is going to give us his only son. And when we fail in our sacrifices to God, Jesus, he is going to sacrifice himself for us. God sent his only son to die for us, to be sacrificed in our place. God, he comes on a rescue mission for us. He shows us the places that we have failed, not not so that we can focus on our failures, but so that we understand what he would do to rescue us from ourselves. He comes even though we fail in our leaderships. He comes even though we fail in our offering. He comes even when we fail in our marriage. He comes even as we fail our children. He comes even in our own selfishness. And Jesus comes no matter how hard our hearts are for him, against him. He comes for us because he loves us, because he wants a relationship with us. And in doing so, he reveals who he is, redeemer, rescuer, and savior. When we open our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to show us the nature of the Father heart of God, we can live in joy. We, we are not focused upon our own lives or our own efforts. We can give with joy. We can serve with joy, and we can love our spouses with joy. We can raise our kids with joy, and we can work with joy, and we can tell others about who brings this joy into our lives. We can tell others about Jesus. And we can live with joy when we really open ourselves up and start giving with joy and loving God and serving God. I'm going to invite the band to come up now. And as we begin to worship in music, we can actually give. Uh, There are uh, offering boxes on the side walls and in the back. And we can give with an open heart. We can give with joy knowing everything that God has given to us. It's interesting going through this book because, like I said earlier, the first thing I notice is, like, this sounds really relevant. 
But God also gives hope to the people of Israel, just like he's given hope to us. And we're sitting on the other side of that hope. We know Jesus has come. We know Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And we know that he rose again, that he conquered sin, and that we can have a relationship with God. And so my hope is that we can go move forward, that we can lean on God, no matter how hard times are, that we can give everything to him, knowing that he will always be there for us and always love us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to reflect. Thank you for this, just everything you do for us, God. No matter how often we fail, no matter where we fail, no matter how we view our failure, no matter how we fear others view our failure, you are a God who loves us unconditionally. You are an unchanging God who loves us despite our sin and that I pray we can be a people that rest in that love, that we can give our failures to you, that we can sacrifice ourselves to you and that in not focusing on us, God, not focusing on ourselves, that we can shed ourselves, that we can let you reshape us and remold us into the people you call us to be. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you for your redemption. And thank you for never giving up on us. In your good name we pray. Amen. Now is an opportunity while we listen, worship and our music, we can come to communion. Communion is that place where we can give everything to God. No matter what we are dealing with, we can give that to God. We can break that cracker and remember how Jesus' body was broken for us. We can dip it in the grape juice and we can remember how Jesus' blood was spilt for us. That sacrifice was for us. And we can give everything up to God. It's an opportunity for us to give everything to God and allow the Holy Spirit to come in, allow God to reveal Jesus to us and allow God to work in us and make us the people he calls us to be.